But I learned from Scripture that when God gives an invitation, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, he really truly meant that, that he meant what he said, and he said what he meant, that if you want to be a member of the elect, you indeed can be. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans and are nearing the end of chapter 8. Earlier this week, Pastor Brogy began a message that introduced us to the relationship between God's foreknowledge and predestination. The idea that some teach that it has been preordained who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. We've so far seen that the idea that some people are predestined to hell is full of error and is contrary to many other passages that teach that God wants none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Pastor Brogy explained that even though all mankind has free will to choose their ultimate destination, God does know ahead of time which decision every person will make. The names of those who have decided or will decide to follow Jesus have been recorded in the Book of Life. And as we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that Jesus made reference to this as well. Those who are true believers will not worship the Antichrist because their name is written down in the book of life. Jesus taught this when he sent the 70 out to represent him and they came back so excited because even the demons responded to their ministry in the name of Christ. And Jesus said, listen, as wonderful it is and as exciting as it is that the demons respond to the authority I've entrusted to you, nevertheless, he said in Luke 10, 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are recorded in heaven. Already there. Uh, listen to this verse, Philippians 4 and verse 3. Paul says, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help those women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, John affirms that that's done before the foundation of the world. And it's assumed in other passages. There was a popular hymn, I think it was written in 1905, it, it was entitled, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. And I sang it as a new Christian, though I haven't sung that in decades. But the thought behind the hymn is that God is busy up in heaven, either he or one of his recording angels, writing down the names of all those people who are saved every hour. Well, that's not a biblical thought. Because God says he already has a book. And in the book of the names of every single individual who has been saved, who are saved, who will be saved. And that that book was recorded ever before God spoke the world into existence. And so it's not really a biblical hymn. But that does not take away from your free will. It in no way the omniscience of God diminishes the free will of man. If you go to hell, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault because you rejected Christ. So Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Those whom God the Father gave to the Son are those whom he foreknew. Those whom God in advance knew would respond to the preaching of the gospel. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Now, I want to give you some verses that teach that this is the simple meaning of foreknowledge because the Calvinist wants to make the word foreknowledge means to choose rather than to have advanced knowledge. They want to make it a divine act and not a divine attribute. 
But I want you to see from Scripture the way the word is simply used. It just means advanced knowledge. It means what it says. And that's why translators historically translated it as foreknowledge. Uh, Jot down some of these verses. 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. Um, This is a verse. You know it. It says that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. See, God is the great I am. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. Dr. Larry has been reminding us of the names of God, and the first name that we studied was Yahweh, the great I am. That God is eternally present. That God lives not in time and space, but He lives in eternity, and He is eternally present. And He sees things from a perspective that we do not see. In um, Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is before this king. His name is Agrippa. And he's sharing his testimony, and he makes this statement. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own, my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. You see those words, have known about? It's the gr- same Greek word, prognosko, used here in Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. In other words, he's saying, listen, these Jews who are here today who are accusing me, they know my former manner of life. They know all about me. Again, the word is being used to describe prior knowledge that these people have. And Paul is inviting them to testify before the king if they would so choose to do. Jot down this verse where foreknowledge is used, Romans 11 and verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The word foreknew, again, it's the same word, prognosko, used here in Romans 8 and verse 29. When we come to Romans 11, we will study this verse very carefully. But contextually, it refers to the fact that God knew in advance that not all the Jewish people would reject Jesus as their Messiah, that there would be a remnant who would believe just like there was a remnant in Elijah's day who did not bow the knee to Baal. Jot down this verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Let me begin in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, was foreknown, same verb, prognosco, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's the same word. He's reminding us that God knew beforehand that he would send his son to redeem the world ever before he made the world, as the revelation affirms, because God knew that man would sin and rebel. Jot down this verse, Acts 2 and verse 23. Peter is preaching. It's the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Here it is, noun form, prognosis. By the prognosis of God, you have, you have taken by lawless man and have crucified and put him to death. Same thought. He's saying, listen, the death of Jesus didn't catch God by surprise. It was planned. It was according to the predetermined plan and prior knowledge of God. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter 3 and verse 17. Peter is warning Christians in his day and in our day of false teachers who will come into the church. And he says, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. 
Those three words, know this beforehand, is one word in Greek, prognosko. Same word used in Romans 3.29. You therefore, beloved, know beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Again, he, he's warning us ahead of time that there will be false teachers who will come into the church and he says because you will know this ahead of time you ought to be on the alert what i'm trying to help you to see is that god's foreknowledge speaks of his prior knowledge and the issue of election is not does god elect but on what basis does he elect and he elects on the basis of his prior knowledge. Peter couldn't say it any more plainly here in 1 Peter 1, 2. Let me read this verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, who are chosen, it's the word for election, who are elected, how? According to the foreknowledge, there's the word prognosis again, a Greek medical term, who are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so, yes, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It is not a question of if, but how does God do it? Now, sometimes I think, in my humble opinion, it is a dangerous thing to give high truth to highly educated people because it is very easy to mix human alloy in with that truth. And I am always impressed by the fact that on the very first Christmas, God didn't appear to the well-educated he appeared to a bunch of simple, uneducated shepherds to tell them about his salvation. And when you travel the world, whether you're in Africa or India or China or wherever it is you are, and you meet the multitudes, the multitudes don't believe what some in this country believe in reference to the doctrine of election. They just read the Bible at face value. And there are some people who are educated beyond their own intelligence and they have departed from what the Apostle Paul calls the simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. Now again, we've just cracked the door on this subject, but let's talk about how this all applies this morning before we leave. A couple of applications. Number one, I learn, I'm reminded that if you want to be foreknown by God for salvation, you can be. If you want to be foreknown, if you want to be one of his chosen, if you want to be one of his elect, you can be. I have good news for you, that God loves you and he wants you. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me will not be cast out. And if you come to him today, he will not abandon you. He will keep you. I was reading Mark's gospel this week, and I was struck by a verse there. It's the incident when Jesus goes into a synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand. And Mark gives a detail that the synoptics don't give, the other two synoptic gospels. Let me read it to you. Mark 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And then Mark alone adds this detail. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored. Now, why should the Lord Jesus be grieved at their hardness of heart if they automatically had absolutely no ability to respond whatsoever? 
Now, there's a way the hyper-Calvinists would explain this verse. Let me illustrate. Here's a farmer who has a fishing hole, and it's for his exclusive use and privilege, and he marks all around it, no swimming, no swimming under any circumstances, private property, keep out. And three boys come to his fishing hole, and they begin to swim. And they're out in the middle of that great pond, and they begin to struggle, and they begin to drown. And so if you ask the Calvinists, do they deserve to drown? He would say yes. Well, is the farmer obligated to save any of them? No, he he clearly marked it with a sign. No swimming, keep out. Is he unjust if he does nothing? No, he's not unjust at all. They, they deserve what they get for their rebellion. And so they would say if the farmer wants to, he can drive right on past. Question, do I deserve salvation? Not at all. What do I deserve? The only thing I deserve is wrath. God didn't have any debts to pay. God didn't have to become a man and die on a cross. God had no debts. That's the essence of grace. But God came to rescue us. Now, the Calvinists would say, okay, here's three boys out there drowning. And the farmer drives by and he says, I think I'll save the one with the blue trunks on. And he throws him a line. And he has mercy on him. And so... uh, the Calvinists would come back and say, well, was God obliged to save all three? They would say, no, not at all. That God saved any is an act of mercy. And so because that one was chosen, because he was the elect, God threw the line only one and not the others. And they would say that perfectly, consistently fits with the nature of God as a just God. But you cannot subjugate the attributes of God. You have to bring them together. There's a a confluence of the attributes of God in Holy Scripture. And God is not only just, God is a God of love. For God so loved the world, and world means world, but not to the Calvinists. They say world only means those of the elect. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So let me ask you a question. Do you think uh, uh, if, if God were the farmer, do you think he would throw a line to all three? I think he would. I think God would throw a line to all three. And if two of the boys say, we don't want your line, you can keep your line, we can save ourselves, and they drowned. God's not at fault. That's their choice. That's the decision that they made. But may I remind you, when John the Baptist introduced the public ministry of Jesus Christ, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect. No, I guess he didn't say that, did he? Who takes away the sins of the world. And so I am reminded from our study, and we will explore it much more deeply in chapter 9 is the crux chapter. And we're going to see that there are some lenses that the Calvinist historically looks through that predisposes the interpretation of the text that he comes up with, and it concerns the people of Israel. You see, the Calvinist believes God's done with the Jewish people, and I am embarrassed every time I go into the Holocaust Museum in either D.C. or in Israel, and I see these statements by John Calvin and St. Augustine and Martin Luther and what they said about the Jewish people. 
But because they believe the church is the new Israel and has replaced national Israel, they don't see national election in Romans 9. They see personal election, and that flavors the way they look at the whole New Testament. But I learned from Scripture that when God gives an invitation, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, he really truly meant that, that he meant what he said, and he said what he meant, that if you want to be a member of the elect, you indeed can be. Second, I learn, if you want to be foreknown by God, you must come on God's terms. If you want to be a member of the elect, you come on his terms. Again, we've only cracked the door on this, and the whole section of 9, 10, and 11 deals with it in more detail. But if you want to be saved, you don't come your way, you come God's way. Um, Let's look at one final text and we'll close with this. Go to John chapter 12 for just a moment. John 12. It's nearing the crucifixion. It's the last few days of the Lord's life. And uh, some people are wanting, they're called Greeks, who want to come and have an audience with the Lord Jesus. And they go to Philip and say, hey, you know, can we come see Jesus? And on this occasion, Jesus just sends back an answer to Philip. Uh, through Philip. And then he addresses all these Jewish men who are around them. John 12, verse 32. Jesus said this, listen carefully, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now the pronoun I is in a position of emphasis in the original because he's underscoring that this is a work that only Jesus Christ can do. If he dies on the cross, and he did, He will draw all men to himself. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's responding to these Greeks who want to see the Lord Jesus. And he's underscoring the fact that God is not interested just in Jews, but he's also interested in Gentiles, namely all men. If he be lifted up, And if you remember from John's gospel in John 3 and his encounter with Nicodemus, that is an expression to use that is used of his death on the cross, but also the subsequent resurrection that would follow. But then he turns to the Jewish man and he gives a very sober warning. Look down, if you will, now at verse 36. He says to these Jewish people, while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you might become sons of light. Jesus is exhorting them to respond to the light, to the revelation that they had received. Why? So that they might become sons of light. And the word become is an aorist tense. You don't become a Christian by degrees. You cross a line at a point in time where one moment you weren't saved and the next moment you were saved. Now, follow this carefully. Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you might become sons of light. And then look down at verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. And then John gives us a parenthetical note that these men did not come on the terms that God calls you and I to come on today. Look at verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing him. Remember, there are three words for miracles in the Bible. Dunamis, teros, and uh, samion. Samion is translated sign. And it's a specialized word that John uses in his gospel, a miracle with a message. And so John doesn't record all 36 miracles. 
that the other gospels record. He records just seven. And he carefully selects seven miracles because he has a message behind each one. Now, all the gospels affirm that he did many, many, many more miracles. John has already said that in John 2. But he wants them to see that there was a message in these miracles, a message that they should have responded to, but they didn't. Though he had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing him. These miracles should have elicited faith. They should have said, this is what God said Messiah would do. He'd open blind eyes. He'd unstop deaf ears. He would give life to lame limbs, and he would raise folks from the dead. And he's done it all, and that should have brought them to faith, but it didn't. And then notice what he says in verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. And he quotes Isaiah 53. You know that chapter, right? It's like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross describing the crucifixion. And it's in large caps here in the NAS because it's showing you it's from the Old Testament. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause. They could not believe, for Isaiah again has said, and now he quotes Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Follow it. It's clear in the text. Because they would not, the Bible says, they could not. Because they would not respond to the revelation that God had given them, God shut up all further revelation. And so God judicially, God does this. The devil doesn't do it. God does it. God blinds their eyes. God hardens their heart. God makes it so they can't see with their eyes and perceive. The harvest is over. The summer is ended. And a decision needed to be made, and they refused to make it. And of course, he says here in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. That is the Lord Jesus. He's reminding us God wasn't blindsided by what the Jewish people did in his day. God predicted it. God didn't make it happen. But God predicted. Now follow carefully what we've learned this morning. By nature, none of us seek God. No, not one. No one can come to the Father unless God draws him. So if you have any interest in your life for the things of God, it's because God put that interest in there first. But God still makes you as a free moral agent. And you have to make a decision. You can say yes to the revelation that God has given you, or you can say no. And when we come to the ninth chapter, we're going to see this interplay between divine revelation and human response where Pharaoh hardens his heart, and because he habitually hardens his heart, God then in response hardens his heart. So you don't come when you feel like coming. You come when God says you need to come. There was a great theologian at Princeton in the mid-1800s when that school still believed the Bible in their seminary. His name was Joseph Alexander. And he said this so wisely. He says, there is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or to despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. There's a line. 
And God is wooing you. He's working on you. He's inviting you to come to Christ. And you can say, no, 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 no. And then you cross that line and you've crossed past the grace of God into God's eternal wrath. And your interest will be forever gone. You say, you're trying to scare me, Pastor. Yes, I am. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't trifle with God. God says today is the day of salvation. That's why when I evangelize men and women and boys and girls, I invite them to receive Christ today. Because tomorrow will be too late for some of them. And the final callous will be put on some human heart where God then judicially gives you what you have said you've wanted. Now, God brought somebody here or someone within the sound of my voice, someone in Bluffton, someone watching by TV, someone listening by radio who needs to be saved today. And that's why the Bible says when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because tomorrow, one o'clock this afternoon, may be too late for some of us. Now, our Father, we thank you and praise you for your magnificent salvation that we who deserve nothing have received everything, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And thank you that when you invite all men to come to Christ, that it is not an insincere invitation, that you truly, earnestly want men and women to be saved. And I pray today for someone who needs to make that decision. I pray, O oh God, that they might in simple childlike faith understanding that they are unrighteous and cannot be their own Savior, that they would take and cling to the cross of Jesus, that by His death and resurrection, they would call upon Him. Do you know if this were your last day? I mean, do you really know if Jesus came today, if the trumpet were to sound, that heaven is your home? If you don't, you can be sure because salvation is not earned. It is a gift that is received. Would you say in humble, childlike faith, Lord Jesus save me. Now, Father, you know I don't claim to understand it all. And I know that you've called us to love one another in the body of Christ. And all of your people don't see eye to eye, but I pray that my heart would never be poisoned by thinking that people cannot be saved because you don't want them to be saved. I pray that as I begin and approach this brand new week, that as you bring people into my path and in the paths of my brethren that are here today, that we would see them for the way you see them, that Christ literally, actually, physically shed his blood, that they could be forgiven. Thank you that not a drop of that blood was wasted because your word teaches for those who are believed, they are declared righteous, but for those who do not believe, it becomes the basis of their condemnation. May you be praised and glorified in all things, and may we begin to have the heart that you have for people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Today's message was entitled, God's Foreknowledge, and is part of our Search the Scripture study in the book of Romans. 
If you'd like, you can listen to it again by using the Search the Scriptures app with Carl Brogy, available from the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at God's chain of salvation, part of our ongoing study of Romans chapter 8. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Music